Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, we are delighted to welcome you on board, Caregiver SOS on air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zernio, our co-host, is a nationally known gerontologist. She's chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging and serves as executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, well-known in this community, having been the director of the AAA here, the Area Agency on Aging. And as I have often said, Carol, you have forgotten more about aging than I will ever know, even as an old guy. So you've noticed that I'm forgetting things. Is that what you're saying, Ron? Caregiver SOS <laughs> on Air brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. I'm not going to go there. I it's just like, glossed right over it's that. It's like a, a, a friend or, or your radio co-host wife saying, does this dress make me look fat? <laughs> okay, I would never ask you that question. And you know the answer to that one is no. <laughs> never. Of mm, course no, not. Uh, we're going to be talking in just a few minutes to a young woman, 24-year-old actress and playwright who's written a play, Mourning the Living, dealing with early onset Alzheimer's and a wife who becomes a, a, a caregiver for him. Before we do that, uh, you know, as people age, occasionally they have to go to the hospital. Occasionally. Which uh, a lot of folks will say the worst place to be when you're sick is a hospital. So tell me about the elderly and what really happens to them in a hospital if we can stereotype well, this was a really good article. It came out of Kaiser Health News, um, and it said, you know, the elderly uh, hospital patients, you arrive sick, but they go home disabled. And that really hit a nerve, you know, as a gerontologist and uh, with the foundation and our caregiver program. I'm sure this sounds very familiar to a lot of people out there where you have a loved one, an older person, who goes into the hospital because they've had a fall, because they've got pneumonia, something. And when they get into the hospital, what happens? They don't get any sleep because somebody's poking them all night long, every two hours. The food isn't any good, so they're not eating anything. They're tied to tubes and oxygen and everything else, so they can't get out of their bed. They're immobile. Um, and where that can be inconvenient for a younger person, for an older person, they may actually lose physical strength they may the not eating may actually take down their health and so it's not unusual why do so many people older people leave the hospital and go to a skilled nursing facility for rehabilitation a lot of times it's not the illness it's because they have become so frail as a result of the hospital stay wow um and so there are hospitals now that are creating special geriatric units where their goal is to do as as le- do no harm, do no harm, do the least amount of medicine, and do um, skills building while the person's in the hospital. So they really try to get them off the pain relief, the pain pills, as quickly as possible, and to actually participate in their own care. So getting them up, unhooking them, making sure they're walking around, make the bed, carry a tray. They may send them to the cafeteria to get lunch and eat with other patients as opposed to lay in the bed and have this food brought to you where you're not moving a muscle. So it's all about keeping the functioning as high as possible uh, as you can despite whatever illness or reason that put you in the hospital in the first place. And I would assume because hospitals are under 
pressure for the Center for Medicare Services now uh, to really cut back on readmissions, that probably goes a long way to eliminating or reducing readmissions. Well, you know, it does, but unfortunately they don't measure functioning. So whereas the hospital, you know, has an, has an incentive to make sure you don't fall or get readmitted or acquire um, an infection, your your decline, you know, so an older person losing functioning is not on their checklist, is not something they're penalized, and not something that they're tracking. And, and don't we uh, wrongly accept that as as a, a fact of life? Yeah, you know, Gramps kind of declined there, didn't didn't do well in that hospital, and uh, things aren't going as well as we'd like. Well, we do, and so you know, so Grandpa has to go to a nursing home at a cost of eighty five thousand dollars a year. Um, that's kind of a big increase. And let's say Grandpa doesn't have any funds for that, so now he's on Medicaid, so now the state is paying for it. So CMS may not be paying for right. it, but the state where Grandpa lives is paying for it. Because Medicare it's still, won't pay for nursing homes. It's still taxpayer dollars. It yes. doesn't matter if it's Peter or Paul or John or Ringo. Somebody <laughs> is paying for the care. I, I like where you went there. That's good. So for folks who are caregivers children, loved ones, uh, how do you prevent this kind of decline? If you go into your ordinary hospital, they're not providing those other services. Well, I think that, again, you, you have to be the advocate because, you know, you can suggest let's unhook them. If somebody can walk, let's unhook them. Let's go ahead and get them up. The good news is medicine is kind of going in the let's get you up and walking mode anyway. That is changing. Uh, the bad food, I'm not sure it is changing, at least not the last time one of my relatives was in the hospital. So, um, you know, you have to look out for those opportunities for them to keep, get as much sleep as possible for them to run as few tests. You know, I can remember they kept testing my dad for diabetes uh, when he was in the hospital. He doesn't have diabetes. And yet every two hours, somebody would show up to check his sugar. And I would have to say, he doesn't have diabetes, leave him alone. So, you know, you, that con- you've just got to have right. somebody there, that communication, make sure they're, they're only running the tests they absolutely need to, and that you're looking out for their functioning and what happens next. After you're listening hospitals. to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with Carol Zernil, in a couple of moments, we're going to be talking uh, to a young woman, Mikael Hogan, who is a actress and playwright, talking about Mourning the Living, her play that talks about a woman whose husband uh, develops uh, early onset Alzheimer's and the struggles that that family goes through. We've talked about caregivers because this is Caregiver SOS on air, uh, but we don't talk as much about folks caring for people with other conditions. We talk a lot about dementia, talk a lot about Alzheimer's. What about those who are caring for cancer patients? Well, I'm glad you asked that because the American Society of Clinical Oncology just released a study. They looked at 1,200 caregivers um, in the United States that were cancer caregivers, and what they found was that cancer caregivers actually have a higher level of burden than other caregivers. That would include dementia caregivers, and that they are providing more hours of care per week. So, you know, that kind of intrigued me, and then I thought about it. You know, we're talking on a shorter, most likely on a shorter-term basis. So when someone develops cancer, you have this intense period 
where they may be getting chemo, uh, they may be getting um, different kind of radiation, different treatments that really takes their functioning, a lot of side effects, takes the functioning way down. And so, you know, it's, it's pretty intense when they're in the treatment phase. Uh, they mentioned in the study that these are caregivers who um, need more assistance on, you know, the end-of-life decisions, um, on hospice care, so not that everybody with cancer passes away, but that the needs are different. So I think that makes sense. Someone with Alzheimer's average is 10 years. Someone with cancer, the average is not 10 years. It is a shorter amount of time. Mm. Um, and with a, an illness like cancer, we know that you know people are going to rally around that. This is time sensitive. We've got to get the treatment now. Whereas Alzheimer's, not as time sensitive. You're really kind of waiting for the person to unravel as opposed to round up right. all the resources and keep them going for as long as possible. It's a different type of caregiving, but, you know, for those caregivers who are out there and dealing with cancer, you know, it's good uh, for those people, for us in this space to recognize that they may be feeling more burdened, that they may be devoting more hours of care, and that maybe they need more help than they're really getting. That's a good point. Everywhere you go, whether it's a business, an office, a homes, a school, you see antibacterial dispensers. You see antibacterial soaps. I know folks who uh, literally scrub their kids down with antibacterial soap uh, morning, noon, and night. Got to kill those germs. Got to protect. And now the FDA says not so fast. Well, you know, I, I'm actually thrilled that the FDA said not so fast because I'm one of those people that um, – has not been in favor of antibacterial soaps because my mother was a nurse and she said, you know, you're just killing all the good germs. They're just going to mutate and you're going to make things worse in the long run. Um, and what a lot of people don't know is that 75% of people in the United States are found with chemicals from these antibacterial soaps in their breast milk, in their urine, in their blood, in babies just born, in the dust, in the water. Um, these are chemicals that go in to kill the germs. And so the FDA was um, asked to, to look at do they do more good than harm? And they said, you know what, there's no proof that all these antibacterial products, particularly uh, the soaps, liquid hand soap and bar soaps that are antibacterial, um, that they actually do more good than harm. So um, two companies that you may have heard of, Procter & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson, are saying they're going to phase out. And the chemicals that you're wanting to look at that are they're phasing out, I hope I say this right, triclosin, triclosin, um, and triclocarbon. So the triclosin is mostly in liquid soaps, and the triclocarbon is in bar soaps. Um, and and that's those are the chemicals they're saying, eh, that we think there's not enough good being done. So, you know, when you and I were kids... We were sent to, you know, we played in the mud and right. we rolled around in the yard and, you know, very little protection, including the time I put that cricket in my sister's tea. Who protected her then? <laughs> um, so, you know, I think there was a recent study that was showing that farm kids have less allergies than city kids because they're out there getting exposed to all of these things. Um, we don't want the germs to mutate and the bacteria to mutate. So if you're one of the people who really loves your antibacterials, I do have bad news for you. There are going to be a lot less products on the market after this, and you're going to be exposed. 
I remember like it was yesterday when my mother yelled out, Spencer Sharwell down the street has chicken pox. Get your butt down there now. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And Penny, Penny's got measles. Go play with her. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So we didn't know it wasn't just germs. We went and got the diseases on purpose. Much less a few germs. And look at us now. We're still alive. We're it's still amazing. Alive. It's pretty amazing. Well, we're going to turn in just a moment to a young woman who's written a fascinating play, Morning the Living. Mikhail Hogan joins us on Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikhoff, we come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. <laughs> Well, we promised we would bring you a fascinating guest, and we have got her on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. And joining us now is Mikkel Hogan, a playwright and actress uh, whose play Morning the Living deals with a topic that if you have been through it and lived through it, caring for someone early onset Alzheimer's to the very end, you know exactly what these challenges are. But not a lot of people know who haven't been there. So, Mikhail, thank you very much for joining us on Caregiver SOS on Air. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. When you spent time uh, working in the home health care field, I guess your parents had started a company that uh, delivered home health care. What got you interested in uh, the challenges of caring for someone with Alzheimer's? I would think a young person, what, you're 24, you were younger then, I think you'd run away from it. <laughs> Well, with my family being so involved with caring for seniors in their homes, um, it just really became a part of my upbringing, and I just had a heightened awareness of the need for elderly care and um, also along with that need for care for those who have Alzheimer's and dementia. And growing up, I think that was one of the first things I said when my mom asked me, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a caregiver. And um, I really admire what my parents do, and I wanted to be involved and get to know the, biz- the ins and outs of their business. So I um, did an internship for a couple summers at um, their corporate office in one of the the pilot franchise offices and I'd fill in for caregivers when they were short-staffed. Um, and that's when I had my first, um, I had a, my first session with a dementia patient and um, it was probably an easy day for the son caring for the mother. Um, I had a lot of trouble 
you know, getting her to take her medications or do her exercises and get her eye drops. It took a lot of persistence and different tactics. And I was trained to do so, um, but it was frustrating at times where I feel like, oh, I'm, I'm running out of tactics and I need to get her through her routine before her son gets home. That's my job. And um, eventually I got her to do one thing and then she was able to finish the rest of her routine, but it really made it, uh, had a big impact on me because I, again, thought, wow, this is what her son goes through every day and this is probably a good day. Well, you answered the question that I was thinking was, did you get any training in advance um, before you went into this home? Do you, and you said you did get training. Do you think that because so many um, aides that go into homes may not get appropriate training, do you think it's, how difficult would it be if you didn't know anything at all, if you had walked in cold, because you had a little bit of training and you'd heard about this, how difficult would it have been if you hadn't known anything? I think it would be very challenging. Um, I feel that if I hadn't been trained in home instead, they always give their caregivers caregiver training as well as Alzheimer's training, and they also provide it free to the public. Um, and they also do online free uh, training classes as well. Um, but if I hadn't had any of that background training, I think it would be very frustrating and the the tools that I have in my tool belt, so to say, um, it would be very limited. Um, and it would be, I think it would be much easier to go straight to frustrated or angry or feel like stuck. Um, and I think a lot of those emotions come up when you're caregiving for someone with Alzheimer's or dementia. Well, it's kind of unusual still to, I've heard of some people, you know, transferring uh, the, the ideas and issues that come up with caregiving into theater, mm-hmm. but there's not a lot of plays about caregiving or Alzheimer's. And your play, Mourning the Living, talk a little bit about that title because someone might think, hmm, how do you mourn the living? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there have been more frequently some plays about Alzheimer's, but more so about the person with the Alzheimer's rather than the ones caring for them. And my play definitely speaks on both. Um, And with the title, Mourning the Living, I took that from, um, I, other than the experience that I have personally with caring for someone with dementia, um, I read countless other people's accounts of caring for their loved ones. And um, someone said that, you know, I grieve for him every day, even though he's right in front of me. And that's what sparked the title, Morning the Living. That's the Nancy Reagan line, The Long Goodbye. Mm, yes. Now, your dad, I, I saw on your website, uh, really got into this uh, idea of founding a company uh, caring for mm-hmm. his mother, your grandmother. Yes, so, do my you, great-grandmother, his you're, grandmother. You're, mm-hmm. Right, his grandmother. Do you, mm-hmm. Were you alive then, you old enough to remember any of that? Yes, I remember I remember her. She lived until she was 101. And um, That's you Midwestern remember, folks, you're long lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Exactly, exactly. Good stock. And, and, and it's just a big testament to, you know, surrounding your loved ones with um, companionship and keeping them active um, and giving them a better quality of life into their old age um, just really helps increase that quality of life and um, surrounds them with love and something to look forward to every day. Well, what has been the response you've gotten from your play? I know that it, it um, you, it's already shown in New York City. Yes, I had, um, it went up in a theater festival and it had three productions and I had a really great response. I got great reviews. I got a mention in the Huffington Post and um, a, a lot of people who have loved ones with Alzheimer's would come up to me and they would say, you know, that is just how it's like. That's how it's like. And it's um, a lot of people, you know, in my play, the uh, wife didn't have a good marriage before she found out her husband was diagnosed. And I, when I was reading a lot of stories, I'd really only hear from, people who had really great marriages with their spouse and them caring for them as um, they're progressing through the stages. And um, I think there's a lot of, while caring for someone with Alzheimer's, there's a lot of emotions that aren't pretty that people want to, that are too ashamed to talk about. There's a lot of um, guilt and anger and frustration, and um, I think sometimes people feel burdened by having to care for their loved one, and um, a lot of times they're not able to get out of the house even to go to church on a Sunday morning because they they can't get them out, or it's too difficult, and they feel that they don't want to burden others by asking for help. And what really needs to happen, and I hope through the play and talking about the play, is bring awareness to how we really need to support our, um, those we know that are caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's or dementia or people in their old age, um, just to offer hours of release so they can go out and maybe see a movie or go to church or do some errands that they need to do and just really give love and support and check in and ask, you know, how are you doing today? Um, Hold that thought. We'll come right back to you. For those of you who just yeah. joined us, we're talking with Mikhail Hogan, who is a actress, a playwright, uh, and her play, Morning the Living, deals with uh, the challenge of caring for someone who has early onset Alzheimer's and what's that like as the disease progresses. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and Mikkel is talking us through the kind of reaction she was getting when she premiered the play uh, at a festival in New York. As you wrote this, you chose, which is probably more t- typical than, as you mentioned, is talked about, you chose a family where they weren't the a happily married, loving couple. Uh, it wasn't a great marriage. Uh, how do you deal with that in the play? Because she's suddenly thrown into the role of caring for someone she may not have even liked. Mm-hmm. 
So the play begins with um, Kay being swept up in a new relationship with one of her coworkers. And um, she finds herself kind of at this crossroads of here's someone that's that's been introduced into my life that gives me all all of my needs. He's there for me emotionally. He's there for me physically. Um, and he can provide what my husband can't provide for me now and never did. Um, so she's having an affair. It, yes. Okay. A relationship. Right. Um, That's well, okay. It hasn't. Yeah. I mean, it's not okay, um, but it's okay. It's a play. <laughs> it's a play. It's a play, Ron. Go and with it. it. <laughs> and as I talk about the play, I've met a lot of people who know people in the same situation. And uh, I took the, that plot from a, another story that I read of a woman who decided to remarry. And her husband was in a home with Alzheimer's, and half of her family said, you know, you do need another, you need a, that support in your life, and I support you in your decision. And the other half of the family saying, how dare you? Um, and had, did not approve whatsoever. And I thought that that was a you know, very interesting um, conflict to have in your life. For sure. um, and so, um, and, and basically the husband, you know, they always, uh, from people's experience, if the person with Alzheimer's in the early stages accepts that they have the disease and are actively working to keep their mind active and um, work with the caregiver on um, eating right, staying active. It's a lot easier. Mikhail Hogan <laughs> is with us, an actress and playwright. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernio. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. We are so pleased you're riding along with us today on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerna, and we're having a delightful conversation with a young woman who is both an actress and a playwright. Mikhail Hogan is her name, and she has written a play that we've been talking about called Morning the Living, which is about a woman whose husband has early-onset Alzheimer's and the struggle she faces in providing the care that he needs, and that, unfortunately, for so many folks, is not unusual. Well, Ron, um, you know, what's fascinated me in, in listening to Mikhail talk about this when she mentions that the wife doesn't have a good relationship with the husband is that so often any caregiving situation will, you know, you bring all your emotional baggage with you. So whether it's the spouse or whether it's the son or the daughter, um, there's nothing like caregiving to exacerbate, uh, you know, that relationship that was good or not good. Uh, and, Miguel, when you were telling us that uh, the wife in your play has an opportunity perhaps uh, 
to have a, a, a better relationship with someone who doesn't have Alzheimer's. You haven't told us yet if she goes with it or not. Um, but that's actually, you know, and you that's actually not far from reality. I think a lot of people, you know, yes, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, but there are situations that are more than some people can handle or early onset Alzheimer's. You didn't think it was going to happen this soon in the prime of your life. Um, and so these are, you know, what you've written is not f- yeah, fantasy by any means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've talked to many people who know people in a, that similar situation that they do you know, decide to start a relationship with someone else that can help give them the needs that they need as well. And, you know, and they're not, and it's not that they're abandoning that their spouse they're there to take care of them and they're doing that and um i know for my character Kay, it's um with her and her husband she's her argument is that you know he doesn't know who i am where we live in different worlds um so that kind of creates a lot of Just a lot of a uh, gray area in with the, that he's no longer the person that she married. Well, walk us through who the characters are in the play. You mentioned Kay, uh, mm-hmm. the spouse, and, and the husband who has Alzheimer's. Uh, who else is in there? The the paramour. Um, yes. Yeah, so Kay is the protagonist, um, and she is the wife to David with early onset Alzheimer's. And um, Jerry is, so Carrie is, uh, sorry, Kay is a English teacher at her school. She works at a high school. And uh, Jerry is the principal. And this is her new Friend. love interest that um, starts off the play. Um, then her uh, character named Marie is Kay's neighbor, and she's older. Um, in about her 60s, and she is the caregiver to David while Kay is at work. Um, Marie herself is a widow, and um, she brings in she brings in this perspective of the play. She's very black and white, and when she finds out about this relationship that Kay is having, um, she is the one to condemn it, to say, um, you made... You made a promise in sickness or in health. You need to be there for David, and I'm not going to be your surrogate while you go live your life with someone else. Um, so she has a very um, traditional view on uh, and perspective on Kay's life and her decisions. Um, and then there's a character named Catherine who comes on stage for just one scene, and she's one of her students. Um, it's late at night, and she, uh, the character gets uh, <laughs> pressured to basically ding-dong ditch her teacher's house, and she uh, basically ends up on Kay's doorstep drunk and embarrassed that she's there, and, and she's Catherine is Kay's best student, and so she's shocked that 
she's there, and um, the scene is kind of this um, showing this mother-daughter sort of relationship and kind of a different perspective on Kay's decision to have a relationship with Jerry. Kay kind of accidentally lets go a, a little bit and tells her on accident that she's uh, seen the principal and... Um, Catherine gives her a little bit of um, support and says, you know, you deserve to be happy. And um, I think it's really great that you're doing this for yourself. And it's kind of a different perspective that we have yet to see in the play. Well, did, um, and it kind of comes from um, a younger generation. Does, you know, going back to the title, Mourning the Living, so as the throughout the play, does, does Kay... Um, do you do you see a sense of sadness in her? Does she recognize that she is indeed uh, grieving for this husband uh, at all, or was the marriage so bad that that she's, you know, really just letting go of everything? Um, it definitely shows her emotional struggle. Um, the play uh, flashes back into time, so you kind of see David go through the stages of Alzheimer's. You see him the reason why their marriage was so um, rocky was the fact that he didn't want to address that he had Alzheimer's. He wanted to go on living his life um, and ignoring the fact that it was an issue. He was too ashamed and embarrassed. Um, so he, he was lacking communication with Kay. He buried himself in his work and to avoid talking about it. Um, and you also find out that they had a miscarriage, which put another pressure on their relationship, the topic of kids, and he not wanting to have kids, knowing now that he has Alzheimer's and not um, wanting to raise a kid while he's eventually going to forget who they are. Um, so it shows all these, you know, kind of attempts at, um, them connecting and it never they never just quite connect but towards the end of the play um, David has a moment when he remembers a lot of things and it brings up all these emotions for Kay because all of a sudden he's there and he is loving and he's like the David that she married for a moment and um that's the moment when she has to decide, basically, David or Jerry. Um, and I found after writing the play, because I kind of made the moment mystical in my mind, but so many people have said, you know, that happens all the time with people with Alzheimer's. They have moments when all of a sudden they kind of click back into reality, and it's almost frightening because they're like, where have I been for the past 10 years um they just have it for a moment and it's almost frightening stick with us you're listening to caregiver sos on air on 9 30 a.m the answer for those of you who just joined us we're talking with miguel hogan who is an actress and a playwright and we're talking about her play mourning the living which grew out of her experience helping in her parents in-home health care service which helped those uh with a variety of issues including alzheimer's 
Well, and, and Mikkel, you know, you've, my goodness, I think you're going to have to do some follow-up plays. You've got all of these uh, different characters and all these things that have gone on. It sounds like you've got enough material. I, you know, I want to know, and then what happens, uh, you know, after the end of your play to all of these people. Uh, so, uh, you know, are do you, you must have gotten... Um, exposed in the home health area to uh, enough material to do more plays do you think that um because you were you know you've already written several plays it looks like uh some other works do you have um things in the future what what's next in a topic area for you um definitely the senior care elderly um and the vitality of People's lives and their older age definitely inspires me a lot, and I something I really love to write about. Um, and I think I'll continue to write about those subjects um, in the future. This um, this play was in the Festus Theater Festival. It just went up for uh, three performances, and so I'm right now looking to fundraise for a uh, longer run in the city. We're hoping to put up a three-week run in New York um, early 2017. So that's the next step with Morning the Living. Do you have a GoFundMe account? Um, I don't have a GoFundMe account, but I'll be raising money um, through a theater company. Oh, cool. Well, I saw that you're also producing, so it says actor, writer, director, and producer, so you're going to be doing all of that just for this one play. I'm not doing all of that for my play, no. Um, <laughs> that would be a lot. For Morning Loving, I wrote and produced it, um, and then I had a wonderful, talented director named Alan Sousa, who directed Morning the Living, and will directed again for the next run um and he's brilliant and i'm so fortunate to have him got less than a minute left uh if folks wanted to learn more about you is there a uh, mikhail hogan website yes mikhailhogan.com and that's m-e-k-e-l-e hogan h-o-g-a-n like hogan's heroes.com m-i-c-k oh m-i-c-k sorry yeah i have to get my glasses adjusted I'm due for a just second. A, I was just about to suggest that, Ron. M I C K E L E. M I C K E L E Hogan dot com. That's I a say handy website. M I C K and I automatically think of M O U S E. Don't confuse. <laughs> <laughs> you went to a fabulous school. Have you finished at uh, NYU's Tisch School of the Arts? Yes, I have. I graduated two years ago. It's a wonderful, wonderful program, and I congratulate you on that. And obviously Thank it got you, you off to a really good start. Well, and you, and people can check out the Huffington Post. If they want to Google you in Huffington Post, they'll find the article uh, where we found you. And we certainly wish you good luck and look forward to um, not only this play, but maybe some future works from you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. You take care. Bye-bye. You too. Mikhail Bye. Hogan, M-I-C-K-E-L-E. Hogan, we thank you for coming on. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS On Air. Up next, Take 10 on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. 
What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues. We've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff, we come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Well, thank you very much for staying with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. At the end of each of our programs, we jump to Take 10, a 10-minute look at a topic of interest to folks who are caregivers, their friends and family and others. And this topic welcomes on board Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist in Florida, joins us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. Uh, Dr. Jamie is a specialist in addictions and caregiving, and Carol Zerniel and me, Ron Aaron, we ride along with us, and you've got a pretty good topic you want to take a look at. Well, this one was appeared on the Huffington Post, um, and all of us, if we're working with caregivers um, or we are caregivers, eventually we're going to come across someone who is dealing with a terrible illness or someone who's lost a loved one. And for many of us, I think, especially these days, it can be really hard when we have no idea how to comfort someone. So, Jamie, why is it so difficult for us to figure out something to say or do when when someone else is grieving? You know, Carol, the hardest thing for us to do as caregivers and just even as, as human beings is to accept uh, our powerlessness. That's the most difficult thing. We stay in control, or we want to have the semblance of staying in control, and watching a loved one suffer is one of the hardest things in the world. We feel like, you know, we're being trapped in their nightmare, and, and we want to be able to fix it. That's that's really the essence of it. There's, you know, we just want to fix it. So many of us, you know, feel like we need to rush in and just say something, say anything uh, to try to comfort someone, you know, especially if they if their loved one, let's say that they the person is a caregiver and their loved one has passed away. Um, you know, is that is that always the best approach? Is saying something, anything better than saying nothing? You know, that's a good question. Um, I, I, you know, my feeling is you you bear witness. You you give a person a safe place, some person that they can actually talk to, someone who will listen, somebody who will stare them in the eyes as opposed to looking down or around. I mean, there's so many ways to support your loved one. Uh, um, it's not your job to take away their pain. You need to acknowledge this and, and, and accept it if you're a caregiver. Um, but your love and understanding, I think, is the best medicine that they need. And that feeling of love and understanding comes across loud and clear when you're present in the moment. And, and also taking time to learn about their illness. So in these days where so often we turn to um, our cell phone, is texting sorry for your loss? Is it appropriate to text, you know, at this time? 
Wow. You know, bearing witness, I've never thought of it from an electronic basis, but I'd say an absolute no. Uh, beyond that, um, if you can't pick up the phone and, and be there, be present for them and understand what they're going through and, and, and realize you can't fix it, but you can certainly communicate your, your empathy and your sympathy and your compassion to them, um, there's nothing, nothing that substitutes for that. But if you talk to millennials, as I, I do from time to time when I can't avoid it, and, and you talk about phones and phone calls, I had a conversation the other day w- w- with a young man who uh, we were talking about texting versus phone calls. I said, uh, how often do you make a phone call? He said, never, maybe two a month, maybe two a month. They use texting for everything, everything. I know, and I think that's a, a, an issue that we really all need to look at. I think, how can you validate somebody's pain through a text? And, and, and how can you, you be there and you know for this person in a text? And I think that whether they choose, the millennials, if you will, to use text, I think we have to be vigilant about our values and how we approach death, dying, chronic illness, um, you know, issues like that. I mean, we have to be there. We don't have to text. Text is a, it's too easy, Ron. It's well, too easy. I was going to say that needs to be one of the two phone calls that month that the person <laughs> makes. That's a good point. <laughs> Instead of just spring for that. You know, I often say texting is an inaccurate form of communication because you can use all the emoji, the little faces, you know, animals, whatever it is that you want but um, you, you can't communicate the sound, the emotion that goes with the words um, when you're doing something in a text, you know, and... But now you can send voice texts. Well, you can't... Okay, so complicate it further. <laughs> Thank you. You can send voice... Okay, voice text. That's kind of like a voicemail, but you're not actually talking to the person. You're right. leaving them a message. Correct. You're talking at them. Yes, so well, and Ron, you you know, there's also other programs which I've even sent you, Marco Polo, which yes. allows you to actually videotape the text, and and you know that's getting closer. But to be perfectly blunt with you, uh, just like Carol said, that should be one of your calls, and that value should be instilled upon that person. Um, we often get fearful of what to say, and I think that says a lot about our own self care and our own confidence in ourselves. Stick with us. We're right now doing Take 10 here on Caregiver SOS On Air. Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel and our good friend Dr. Jamie Heisman talking about how to comfort someone uh, in a time of crisis, loss, uh, and what are the best ways to do that because none of us really know what to say. Well, there are two interesting examples in this particular um, post. One of them was talking about uh, the value of listening that rather than saying anything, they simply ask, you know, you know, uh, at the end of your life, you know, what were the things that your mother enjoyed? Um, and let the, the caregiver talk about her mother and just take it from there. And that became multiple conversations so that this person, whenever, you know, they saw them, they, they would think again, they, you know, renew the conversation, you know, what I really miss about my mother. And it just gave a chance for that caregiver to you know talk through her emotions and that person just listened and didn't really say anything other than you know a question to trigger a response one of the nice things about being jewish dr jamie is uh, sitting shiva after a death where the family will gather and friends and relatives will come visit and a lot of that is done at that event 
It is, and and pressing is too, if you will. You're eating and celebrating the person's life, and you're sitting on that bench and sitting shiva. It's a it's a routine in which it's it's a ritual. It's something that allows you to start transforming. Uh, but to Carol's point, you know, just to to be with somebody and give them space when they need it is incredibly important. I don't know if we understand in this fast-paced world that living, you know, with chronic illness can be so incredibly lonely, and it's easy to feel disconnected from the world. And so it, it, to relate to somebody is extraordinarily important. Just knowing we're not alone in that moment of pain is enough for us. And so for somebody to be there, if you will, and yet to give space, I think, is, is the greatest thing we could possibly do as a caregiver. Well, the other example that they gave that was so interesting was uh, there was a woman who really didn't want any visitors. She was, you know, in deep mourning. Um, and so the gentleman... Uh, came to her house and he just pulled the crabgrass in her yard um, and pulled the weeds. And so he did knock on the door. He knew that she could see that he was out there doing something for her in her yard, that he was there and thinking of her. Um, but he just did a little lawn work for her uh, rather than, you know, actually approaching her, which I thought was kind of interesting. I don't I'm trying to think how I would feel if I, you know, my, saw some saw, <laughs> you all saw a friend out there pulling the crabgrass, you know, in the yard. It would take forever. And wow. Anything like that is important. Actually, what you're doing is validating their existence. And so uh, a person who's disconnected, a person who has chronic illness, a person who doesn't feel a part of this world, who sees somebody you know, mowing their grass or, or experiences somebody in front of them who says, I, I understand how you feel, I mean, it can go you know, so far. Well, and I think the other thing that even if we, you know, there's that immediate loss, but I'm thinking of someone, um, their son committed suicide, and um, another person, I think it had been like maybe, I don't know, 12, 13 years since the son had committed suicide and called on the her son's birthday and said, I just want to let you know that I'm thinking about your son. And she's like, no one ever says his name anymore. No one remembers him anymore. And it just meant so much to her that many years later that someone mentioned him and remembered him. And so, you know, remembering our loved ones, uh, having somebody remember our loved ones with us later on can be important too. That's a great idea. No. It is, it is a wonderful idea, and it, it, it says something that the, the texters and the millennials uh, will probably have to learn, and I'm sure they will. I think this is a heartfelt piece here. It's just a, that people just want people to understand them and to be there for them. And actually, again, this goes back to many of our other uh, Take Tens, where really it's about our own self-care, our own ability to sit with somebody in discomfort and yet to listen and just to be present. At some future take ten, we ought to talk about loneliness. What is it? Uh, what are the manifestations? Because it it stretches across species, so that uh, humans and other animals uh, can feel loneliness. More on another take ten. We are flat out of time. Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Thank you for joining us on Caregiver SOS on Air on 9:30 a.m. The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on Air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, 
WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues. We've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate that. But I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff, we come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer.